We are back. We're speaking with science writer Bob Berman about his book, The Sun's Heartbeat, and other stories from the life of the star that powers our planet. Well, I got to hand it to you, Bob. I learned a lot of medicine reading your book. I didn't expect that. Uh, I learned that highway signs are green because our vision really does work exceptionally well in the green range. Right, exactly, because our eyes were obviously designed to uh, see by sunlight. It would have been pointless to have a vision that uh, did that saw anything else but the light that's uh, coming down on the planet. We were finding our way around, whether we're looking for a for our underwear in the morning or a hamburger, whatever it is, uh, we're looking at it because photons of light are bouncing off these objects. So that's what we perceive with our eyes. So it's not an accident that we perceive just the type of uh, photons, the part of the electromagnetic spectrum that the sun emits most strongly. If, uh, if you ask people, well, what do you think the sun gives off? most of? Is it heat? Is it gamma rays? What? And it's rather surprising that the sun's peak emission is visible light, and the peak of that is green. So the sun gives off more green light than anything else. And sure enough, our eyes are more sensitive to green than any other part of the spectrum. That's one of the reasons that many cities have stopped having red fire engines. At night and have them green now, so because that's a color that we see uh, much more readily in dim light, and uh, so the sun's emissions really has uh, effects all over the place, and that's why interstate highway signs are green because uh, this is what we see much more readily than anything but else. But I have to ask, but why why isn't the sun green then? Why are we a yellow star, and why are why are other stars not green? That's a great question, Doug. In fact. Uh, A few years ago, two University of Arizona astronomers announced, and it was carried by all the mass media, carried on television, that the uh, universe is actually green. That's what they had discovered, because the universe is made of stars, and stars, like the sun, most give off more green light than anything else, so they decided the universe was actually green. Uh, Those of us who know about this stuff just laughed at our TVs and said, we can't believe that these guys were taken in like that, because the truth is, when our eyes get green light, but also blue and red, what we then see is white. And so uh, the, the nature of our vision is that whenever we see white light, for example, a cloud or snow, it just means we're getting it all. We're getting the full emissions of the star or the sun and it'll always give us the perception of white. White means we're getting it all, and not green. If, if the sun were only giving off green light, of course, then it would look green. But because it still gives off lots of uh, red and blue at the same time, what the result then, the subjective experience is white. Well, let's return to this, this interface between astronomy and medicine. Uh, as a doctor, I was intrigued by your chapter on declining vitamin D levels. Um, in human populations where we now spend more time indoors and behind glass, uh, we're getting less sunlight. And I, I always did think that our colleagues in dermatology that were going a bit far to advocate staying out of the sun, etc. And, and you agree that this has evidently swung too far in the direction of sun avoidance. Yes. The people that I spoke to, the physicians and the vitamin D council, it's a nonprofit group that studies these things. Some of them, uh, Dr. Uh, John Cannell uh, and, and the others that I spoke to, uh, are downright spooked. They're afraid. 
They, 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 they think that we humans are doing ourselves in by uh, not letting our skin get sunlight. The, the fact of the matter is our skin, when exposed to the ultraviolet of the sun, in a mere 20 minutes, we will get the same vitamin D manufactured uh, by our bodies as you get from drinking 200 glasses of milk. Wow. In other words, there is a, uh, an amazingly profound, rich vitamin D generation going on, and it's continuous as long as we're outdoors. Now, obviously, we uh, grew up, we evolved being outdoor creatures. We don't live in caves. We don't live in, uh, in moles under the ground. We're not moles. But that's changed starting about a century ago when uh, America went from being an agrarian nation to a manufacturing nation. We spent more and more of our time indoors. Then when the switch in window glass came about, whereas windows now don't generally open, and you see we don't get ultraviolet through a closed uh, window. It doesn't go through glass. Mm -hmm. So in all the offices where windows don't open, you can't get any ultraviolet and therefore no vitamin d is produced by sunlight hitting your skin from behind glass and then the final straw was at least kids after school used to play outdoors yeah i remember when i was a kid my parents would just let me run out to playgrounds and get on my bike and things like that but in the last 20 or 30 years this has changed playgrounds are now uh, some of them are very empty and that's because First, the fear of sexual predators has made some parents make their kids just come home and not, not run, run free. Secondly, the video game craze, where kids want to be indoors at their computer screens. And through it all, kids also are getting less and less sunlight on their skin. And the final straw was the skin cancer thing. We all know that, as you just said, your colleagues are... Uh, scaring everybody by saying, avoid the sun, put on sunscreen, and, uh, and people are doing that. And so the, the, the little bit of time they're spending outdoors, they're slathering themselves up with, with sunscreen and blocking any vitamin D production. Now, this, in the minds of the people on the vitamin D council, and more and more physicians, is what's really worrisome, because our vitamin D levels are now only a fraction of what they would be. Nobody knows really what the normal rate would be because if we were really outdoors all the time, we'd be making it all tons of vitamin D. But they, have to, they told me things like, why does nature do this? Why, why do we create so much vitamin D in our bodies from relatively little sunlight? And the suggested answer, the implied answer, is that nature doesn't do anything accidentally that we're meant to have a steady and large amount of vitamin D. The fact that vitamin D is one of the most potent anti-cancer agents known is one hint. Some on the vitamin D council are convinced that the autism epidemic is due to a lack of vitamin D in youngsters and also in, uh, in uh, potential mothers, mothers who have developing fetuses inside them. Uh, of course, it's a, a can of worms anytime you're, you're trying to pin autism on anything. I, you know, I, I recognize that. And the bottom line is that although skin cancer uh, is, a, is an issue, as especially as more and more people in America migrate to the sunnier states away from the northern and northeastern states, 
and more people spend time outdoors and outdoor activities, boating, golf, etc. Uh, the bottom line is to get as much sunlight as you can without burning. As long as you don't burn, and people who are fair-skinned, uh, you know, have freckles, have red hair, blue eyes, blonde hair, you, you know who you are. <laughs> And uh, you, sh you should never let yourself burn, because that's where the, the issue of melanoma comes up. Not to belittle it, but there are only seven or 8,000 melanoma deaths a year. The big, big, big skin cancer thing are the other forms of skin cancer, which uh, tend to be uh, non-malignant. Uh, they don't metastasize, uh, and, and they're easily cured. So, again, on the vitamin D council, they think that this is a overblown concern that's getting everybody to wear... Uh, uh, skin protection and that yes you should protect yourself from burning but not from getting sunlight period and that uh, people would be doing themselves a major health benefit by uh, getting as much sun as they can without burning that's the issue without burning uh, they believe that the rates of cancer would plummet all types of cancer if uh, everybody did that and that we've become a race of of mole people hiding from the sun in a way that nature never intended. Well, I think you're onto something with this, and we'll do some follow-up on this program in that very area, I can assure you. In the book, The Sun's Heartbeat, devotes a large amount of space uh, to the remarkable phenomenon of solar eclipses. I've been fortunate to see four of them in four tries, and, and I tell you people... You have? Uh, may I ask where? Uh, well, I was there in Mexico in 1991 when you were down there as well, and I... Good. I, I want to say that, just, just to to jump ship on what I was about to say, but that eclipse had streamers so far out that the that no picture... I finally saw a picture done by a Japanese astronomer who, who layered 40 different uh, uh, exposures on it, and he was able to capture what it looked like, but otherwise very difficult to convey what it really looks like, how spectacular it really is. You're so right. You're so right. The, uh, the uh, total eclipse... And this is very different from everyday experience because we're used to, you know, if we take a photograph of a friend, the photo resembles the friend. There's no question about it. <laughs> but a picture of a total eclipse, because there's such a great gradation of brightness, uh, our eye is able to see uh, the, the faintest aspects and the brightest aspects. But film has an exposure, even CCDs, digital exposures. You'll either overexpose one part or you'll underexpose the other. And as a consequence, the photographs of a total eclipse do not resemble what it actually looks like in person. Not to mention the, uh, I don't want to get hippie here and use the word vibe, but uh, I don't live too far from Woodstock, New York, so I guess I'm allowed to do that. The vibe of it. You know, there's a vibe to things. You know, I don't care what people say. You know, if you, uh, whenever I've heard about a birth, uh, a woman giving birth. It, it always looked on paper like an, a horrible, bloody mess, like something out of Aliens, where you'd have this poor screaming woman who, who would stop screaming only when, when she was handed a baby with a deformed head. You know, they're deformed a little bit when they first yeah, come out. Yes, I do. And, and it's uh, just a bloody mess. And it looked like I turned down a few uh, <laughs> invitations to attend births. And yet when I attended the birth of my daughter, it was just sheer magic. You could almost... <laughs> feel the flapping of angels' wings in the, in the room. Uh, so sometimes, you know, when people say, ah, you had to be there, well, that's nowhere more true than in a, a total eclipse, as you well know. Well, I, I've, I've tried to convey to people why, you know, you should, and you, and you do in the book, you advocate in the book rearranging one schedule at some point in life to accommodate going to see one, because uh, a person just needs to do this. 
Exactly, and uh, it really should be on the, uh, the, everybody's bucket list. And the reason it isn't, I think, is that people think they know what it is. First of all, a lot of people think it's just blackness, and what's so special about blackness? You know, you want darkness, just don't pay your electric bill. Or just go into a closet, you can have darkness. Why, why do you have to spend a lot of money and travel to a faraway place? Secondly, the photographs seem to show that familiar black cameo of uh, the moon with the sun behind it a little bit, and, and they think, well, that, that's it. You know, I've seen it. It looks okay. It doesn't look that great. But the actual experience just knocks you backward. People weep. Animals go crazy. That, that uh, the, the sun's atmosphere, as you saw down in Baja, just spreads across the sky following magnetic field lines on the sun to an extent that, uh, that you would have never imagined possible. And it's uh, one person I was with some years ago said uh, they described it as the home of my soul. <laughs> you feel like you've awakened somehow in a different place, a different planet, a different time. And it's, it is such an awesome experience that when it's over, all you can think about is, uh, how can I get back to that? How can I see well, that again? It's so funny. I, in, in, 19, in 91, when I saw the one in Mexico, that was my exact reaction. The next one was in Bolivia in 94. I was down there planning to get to the center line and ran into a couple of British kids that were saying, oh, we're going to go north. It'll be 99% there. It's going to be great. <laughs> I said, listen to me. Change your travel plans and go see the 100% part. You 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 won't be sorry. And I I saw them after the eclipse was over. They both looked at me and said, "Thank God we met you and you told us this." Yes, exactly. Because ninety nine percent elsewhere in life, you'd think, "All right, ninety nine percent, that's good enough." But this is sort of uh, like an on off switch. It's 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 either you see totality or you don't. A partial eclipse doesn't uh, have the stars come out in the daytime. It doesn't have the corona of the sun going across the sky. It doesn't have any of it. It's uh, it, it, it's got to be 100 percent it's got to be totality and its rarity of course adds uh, a little bit to the difficulty and to the appeal because uh, for any given place on earth a total eclipse only happens once every 370 years or so and then if it's cloudy you have to wait another 370 <laughs> years for, for those making up their bucket list, we should note the next one, the next good one, will be Queensland, Australia, next November 14th. I know you'll be there. I know Astronomy Magazine's offering tours. Uh, one can book a tour. One can go on one's own, I, I, and I'm going to be there. But, uh, but the thing people should note is time to start planning is now. That's right. That's right. In their time zone, it'll be the, the uh, that's right, the 13th. Get there before the hand in Cairns, northeastern Australia, and and that's it. Of course... Now it's only a few years till the first U.S. totality. It's been 38 years. We've had a long yes. uh, drought, the longest drought in U.S. history of no total eclipses, but uh, we're going to have one now on August 21st of 2017. Finally, we'll have a, uh, a totality in the United States. When we should note that, unfortunately, although we are getting a solar eclipse here in, in, in Northern California, May 20th, unfortunately, the moon is not big enough to cover up the sun. It'll only be an annular. It'll still be, it'll be curious, it'll be interesting, but it'll still be daylight. Exactly. You'll need eye protection. You'll need, uh, again, you'll use those welder's goggles. Yes. Uh, as you say, perfect description. It's interesting to see the moon in front of the sun with a ring of sunlight behind it, but it isn't totality and you want you, ha you want totality don't don't settle for anything less <laughs> so australia november 14th 
Um, as we close, I, I want to just mention something that you, you talk about in the book that people are unaware of. I was mentioning this to some reporters yesterday, and they, they'd never heard of it. The Carrington event back in 1859. Um, future similar events may affect our lives in a very scary way. Can you talk about what, uh, what these sort of things may do to our electrical grid? Yes, what Richard Carrington uh, saw, and he was the first to see it, was a flare on the sun. He saw a section of the sun grow twice as bright as the rest of the sun. And following that, by a couple of days, there were uh, amazing aurors around the country. There were uh, uh, damage to telegraph lines. At that time, of course, they didn't have the high-voltage lines or the other electronic equipment. There was no electronic equipment. The only power lines were were, uh, were um, telegraph lines. And yet, this solar event caused uh, power to surge along these and not uh, Western Union operators off their chairs, knocked some people unconscious, started fires, made auroras so bright that in New York City people were on rooftops gaping. In the West, some people thought that dawn had come and they were getting up to make breakfast because they, they thought it was morning. And uh, then later on, in the 1920s, we had another event that was uh, almost as significant that also did damage, set fire to railroad um, switching stations and things. And the bottom line is that if we have a major coronal mass ejection along the lines of those, and we will sooner or later, it can do uh, an estimated one to two trillion dollars worth of damage and require years to recover. It's one of those events that's been characterized as low frequency, high impact, and that's why it's pretty much ignored because it costs so much to try to harden our electronics and our infrastructure and our electric power lines and all of the rest. But even m relatively minor storms have done a lot of damage. In uh, March 13, 1989, one quarter of Canada was plunged into darkness overnight because of a, a solar storm. And something far worse could happen at any time. So as we approach now the next solar maximum, now scheduled for 2013, these are things to bear in mind. Well, uh, final question. Uh, in all the research you did into the sun and its effects, uh, what, 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 what facts surprised you the most? I had not known that, the, uh, that there's a sun inside the sun. I was only getting used to the fact that, that there's a Earth inside our planet Earth. When I went to school, we were taught that the center of Earth is liquid, is liquid iron. And uh, I'm just getting used to the fact that the center of Earth is a solid ball about the size of Pluto that spins faster than the rest of Earth. In other words, we have a kind of planet inside our planet. Well, that there's a sun inside the sun, that the innermost 70% of the sun spins as if it were a solid ball. And uh, the outer 30% has this chaotic differential spin. And where the two meet, a newly discovered zone called the tachocline. That's where the solar violence is born. That's where the magnetic field is born. And well, before we go, any websites of your own and others you'd like to recommend to listeners? Well, for those who want to get to this eclipse, I would say Berman Astronomy Tours. That would be a plug. It's almost full, actually, at this point, but there's still some spaces if you want to join us in Australia for this upcoming uh, eclipse. Uh, there will also be, in uh, March... I'll be leading a group to central Alaska to see the aurora, which is 
also, needless to say, generated by solar storms. And central Alaska is the best time. People wonder, well, why would you go in, in March that's still winter? Isn't it a little crazy? And the answer is that people who go to Alaska in the summertime and then say, <laughs> well, I didn't see the northern lights. Well, hey, there's no night at that time. It's never dark. Of course you're not going to see the, the northern lights. You want to see them? Uh, the best time is uh, March for Alaska. Well, we certainly recommend The Sun's Heartbeat to all listeners. Uh, Bob Berman, thank you so much for speaking with us, and, and, I, and I do hope that we'll speak again and perhaps cross paths in Cairns, Australia in next November. I hope so, Doug, and it was uh, a real pleasure to be talking to you. I had uh, no idea, uh, but uh, you've been to eclipses and things. It's, it's great. Gladdens my heart. <laughs> Very good, sir. Very enjoyable. We certainly hope we'll have Mr. Berman on this program again. We did record that chat a couple weeks back and would note that right on schedule, seemingly, the sun experienced a coronal mass ejection earlier this month, the largest one in years. It hit the Earth's magnetic field on January 24th and produced, well, some of the best auroras people have seen in many a year. Unfortunately, with the time it reached North America, it had largely petered out, but observers in Scandinavia, Iceland, and Greenland witnessed the full spectacular display, and for more pictures on that, we refer you to spaceweather.com. We didn't get to everything we meant to today, but we'll pick it up again next week. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax.